The reading comes from Revelation chapter 21 and 22 this morning. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no more night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful will be there, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. It's a privilege to be preaching this morning. I've realized that this Remembrance Sunday is the 15th anniversary of my coming to faith Uh, in a windy room uh, on the south coast of Great Britain. So uh, it's a joy to be preaching in the last of this creation series. In 1993, an eminent American psychologist, James Hillman, wrote a book with the provocative title, We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World's Getting Worse. And what Hillman was saying in that book was that psychotherapy has been very present to us for a hundred years, tending to deal with family dysfunction and so on, Um, but actually the world is not in a better state. And the reason that he comes up with is because there are fundamental issues, injustices in the world, systemic problems, problems with the state of ecology and creation, which mean that any kind of healing ministry 
can only get so far if it's actually keeping its eyes on, uh, on the wrong source. That there's a fracture in creation which damages our souls. Now, I want to come this morning to new creation via Anita's magisterial sermon last week, where she was talking about the groaning of creation. Because I just want to put us in touch with that groaning again before we come over the horizon from there into the new Jerusalem, which we've just heard read about. We need, in a sense, to just review the bad news once more before we come to the glorious good news. So, Nikki, if we can start playing that film, I want to show you a short extract from a film which is made by an American visual artist called Chris Jordan, and it depicts an atoll in the North Pacific Ocean. This is about halfway between Hawaii and Japan. Amazing place, one of a series of atolls there. It's a breeding ground for albatross. Thousands and thousands of albatross chicks being reared there by their parents. Real place of beauty, but also a place of paradox because this atoll is in a position in the ocean where there is reputed to be an area of plastic which is about twice the size of Texas floating in the sea, discarded plastic, which the albatross parents feed unwittingly to the chicks. And so this man is documenting the fact that essentially only a third of these albatross actually survive to adulthood because their parents are feeding them toothbrushes, cigarette lighters, and so on, and the chicks clearly can't survive. It's a kind of prophetic image of fallen creation. It's a sort of Flanders field of the animal kingdom. And it's because of human consumption and our, um, our difficulty with managing waste. And what Chris Jordan says is that he believes that as a society, as a culture, we need to come out of denial and confront these things uh, more head-on. That, in a sense, until we start groaning with creation, uh, these kind of things are not going to change. He, he analogizes it with addiction. He says the addict has got to come out of denial and face the facts. And that in the same way, we perhaps need to go through some degree of grief and shame about such things in order that we can come to make more ethical decisions. Now, theologians talk about how our wrongly aimed desires lead to this kind of groaning in creation. That at the beginning of creation, God created good creational structures and gave us the opportunity to direct our desires towards him for his glory, but also to potentially misdirect them. It's, if you like, uh, to use an analogy, uh, comparable to the way that photography as a medium can be used to capture truth and beauty, or it can be used to promote pornography. It can go either way, depending upon what human desire 
does with it. Now, in the depiction of the New Jerusalem that we've just heard read by Tim, what we see is that all human desires are going to be reconfigured. They are at last going to be brought to a place of full health and wholeness. And that if you like, the kind of mangled music that has played through creation while it's been groaning is going to finally resolve into a magnificent symphony. The message of Revelation is that despite the unfinished symphony that we're experiencing in the here and now, God is sovereignly in charge of human history and is bringing everything to a glorious conclusion. And that in the New Jerusalem, this symphony will reach its triumphant conclusion. Everything discordant will resolve. Every ecological imbalance will be recorrected. But before we get to that, which comes in Revelation 21, three things need to occur, and they occur in the passage immediately before in Revelation 20. Firstly, Jesus returns. Nothing can be foundationally set right until Jesus comes again. It's a spiritual watershed that we need. Secondly, the dead are raised bodily. Salvation isn't only uh, spiritual, it's physical. We're going to have new resurrection bodies, which as somebody who's been overcoming flu all week, I am personally delighted about. And this is really important, the fact that we're going to have resurrection bodies for our relationship to place, the place that we're going to be in as well as the place that we're in now. I'll come back to that. The third thing that happens in Revelation 20 is that Jesus judges. There is a final judgment, and as a result, some enjoy life in the new creation, and some experience final wrath. And there's a coming as a result of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what follows those three things. It's an amazing act of recreation by God. Before I got ordained, I was a theater director, and during my 20s, I used to tour theater productions around this country. So we would take a production of Hamlet, from Land's End to John O'Groats, and we'd play in different theatres, village halls, and so on. One night stands, two night stands, and then we'd move on. And for us, the really important thing was the production of Hamlet that we were carrying around. These places that we were moving through were just a kind of temporary stage. They had their use, but then actually we were moving on. But this planet is not a temporary stage. It's not something that we're moving through and is then going to be consigned to the rubbish tip. It's much more precious to God than that. It's not some pop-up creation that's going to the dogs and is finally going to be flushed away. It's going to be renewed. In Revelation 21.5, God says, I am making everything new. He's not the god of the antiques roadshow. He's not going around with a feather duster, kind of restoring what is ancient. He is making everything new. But he's not the god of the interior design challenge either, doing a kind of 48-hour paint makeover. 
everything is fundamentally and foundationally getting renewed. And it doesn't happen through technological advance as it often occurs in science fiction films. It happens through the spiritual watershed of Christ coming again. And so this morning, I want to just stand with you on that threshold and kind of look into eternity. And just to sort of say for a moment, what an incredible privilege that God has even vouchsafed us this vision. That scripture could have ended after the epistles, but it doesn't. He wants us to know the end of the story. As Christians, we don't have any need for astrology or futurology to try and decipher what is going to happen. We've got the authoritative word of God about what end-time new creation is going to look and feel like. And it's essentially a wonderful fulfillment of creation. It's what creation was always aimed towards, what it was always expected to be. It's a time and a moment where God is going to reign in his fullness. But it's not just about a people and a presence, it's also about a place. It's about a specific place into which he is going to bring us. That's his heart for his people. So now I just want to offer you a kind of whistle-stop tour of the New Jerusalem in terms of what we heard read by Tim before we consider what that means really for our lives now. Now, you'll be well aware the language and the mode of the book of Revelation is imaginative. It employs metaphor and symbol and allegory. So we're going to have to exercise our imaginations as we attempt to conceive it this morning. God wants us to be stretched. You know, it's a, it's a stretch to actually get our heads around what is coming. But let's begin with Revelation 21, 3 to 4, where we read, They, that's us, will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no groaning anymore of creation. There's no grieving amongst humankind. And I love that image of wiping away our physical tears. It's a kind of amazing uh, image of the proximity of God that we'll enjoy. Just to kind of delve into that a little bit further, listen to a 14th century female mystic, Julian of Norwich, talking about this very fact. She has a vision and she says, I saw our Lord at the head of his own house, to which he had invited all his beloved servants and friends for a royal feast. The Lord occupied no one special place in his own house, but presided like a king over everything, filling it all full of laughter and joy. And he continually comforted all his beloved friends and made them glad with his warm friendliness and perfect consideration, and with the marvelous melody of the eternal love in his beautiful, blessed face. That's where we're all going. It's amazing. That's where we're all destined to go. We're going to know that intimacy. I want, to, I want to make your toes tingle with anticipation about this this morning. That after the desolation of the earlier chapters of Revelation, 
This is now a place of celebration. It's a specific place that we inhabit with resurrection bodies. And it's not some kind of ethereal eternity floating on a cloud. God's grand design is a city garden. It's a city garden. It's a city without a temple, John says, because the Lord and the Lamb are now going to be the temple. In other words, the presence of God will be everywhere. The whole place will just be saturated and impregnated, dripping with his presence. So we don't need a temple anymore. And the image for the New Jerusalem that's given is of a kind of extraordinary light box of glass and gold which John envisages descending from the heavens. And it's very interesting that the dimensions of that cube that are given exactly replicate the area called the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, the place where the presence of God could be experienced. Except that in the Old Testament, the only person who's allowed to enter the Holy of Holies is, of course, the high priest, who can enter it once a year and who goes in bearing the name of God on his forehead. But now... In the New Jerusalem, the whole city becomes the Holy of Holies, and we're told that God's servants, that's us, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, we'll each carry that priestly duty and enjoy that incredible intimacy with God. What a marvel. What a marvel that that's what lies in store for each of us. The book of Isaiah, earlier on in the Old Testament, has prophetic images about how the the non-human world will also be reconfigured at that time. So if you'll remember, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. There's going to be an end to evolution as something predatory, as the survival of the fittest. It's going to be rewired and all creatures are going to live at one and at peace with each other. It's a place of community. It's a place where the nations are gathered in. It's a city with walls for self-definition, but also welcoming gates which open up to the four points of the compass and through which the nations of the world are going to stream in, just as they stream into this crossroads city of Oxford. And it's a city garden. It's not a return to the Garden of Eden, uh, wonderful though that was. It's something new. It's not a question of kind of going back to the woods. It's about there being a perfect union of city and nature. And that has huge implications for our ecological stance because it means we don't revere nature and rubbish humanity, um, which might lead to the kind of tree-hugging that... Simon referenced in his talk. And it doesn't mean either that we revere humanity and rubbish creation, in which case we become kind of toxic industrialists. Instead, we understand that the destinies of society, human society and nature are completely intertwined. And we're told that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Which is a really kind of perplexing image because... We're told there's no curse, there's not going to be any suffering anymore. Why do the nations need to be healed? 
It's not entirely clear, but it says something about the way in which our environment is actually going to sustain us in an incredibly refreshing and new life-giving way. The human alienation that's always been there between people and their environment is going to be overcome. So that's nature. And then on the city front, the cultural achievements of history will be purified and will be brought into this place. So we read, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. In other words, this has got huge implications from culture making here and now because it's like the fruit of our culture is going to be taken into the new Jerusalem. It matters. It's important what we create uh, in our society now. And finally, it's a place of escalating glory. You'll remember C.S. Lewis's image of new creation being like unending summer holidays, which just go on getting better and better. The 12th century French abbot, Bernard of Clairvaux, imaged it as a time where oil is going to get poured on flames. And it's just like the, the um, spreading fire is going, to, is going to grow more and more in, intense. It's a kind of image of uh, non-stop um, joy and desire being fulfilled. So let's just, just for a moment, just stop and pause. And maybe you want to close your eyes and just take in the fact that Scripture is saying that this is your final destination. This is going to be your home in eternity. Okay, and what is John of Patmos' response to this vision, as perhaps ours might be too? Well, at the end of his description of it, he calls out in yearning, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. He understands that this new creation is somehow inextricably bound up with encountering Christ in all his fullness. Now, this is a profound mystery, and we see it referenced in the book of Colossians. If we could just have that passage, Nikki, up on the screen. Let's just read this. Let's read it together. He is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, whether invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Really mysterious passage. Jesus is not simply the man God who walks the earth during his time of earthly ministry, kind of like a lone figure walking in a western among the canyons, he's also the figure who somehow encompasses the whole of creation, by whom everything was created and in whom all things are sustained. And what we're learning here is that Christ comes not just for our personal salvation, but for the renewal of all things. God's love letter is for each of us individually, but it's also 
for material creation. And you'll know that in today's movies, special effects are often created where the actors are filmed against a blue screen, yeah, and then they drop in later the kind of landscape behind them. Again, the environment is sort of secondary. But environment's never secondary like that in the Bible. So, where does this mystery take us in our own lives here? Is all of that across some kind of unbridgeable divide, and does it not really have very practical implications for our lives in the here and now? I want to suggest otherwise. And I want to celebrate, really, what might be possible for us if we engage with this idea of really um, investing in the place in which God has put us and we seek to renew the creation around us. So I'm going to offer you just four examples now for some kind of inspiration and salivation um, and to look at how these practices might have implications for our own placemaking. Because I believe that Christians are called to do all the things that um, secular art architects and city designers and public policy people uh, do, but we should be doing them with more imagination and depth because of our theology, because of what we know is coming. So, Nick, if we could have that first image of the PowerPoint up, please. This, oops... This here is a place in the Gorbals in Glasgow. Um, just behind that wall lies what in medieval times was an orchard, um, but which in the 18th century became transformed into a cemetery. Uh, and then in the, about the 1950s, it fell into complete dereliction and disrepair. Um, until 12 years ago, when an organization, an environmental organization, um, initiated a conversation between an artist and the local people. And the artist chose to restore the life of the orchard. And she did it by planting 75 trees and 300 fruit bushes. And that's what arose instead. And now, 12 years later, every year, the local people in the community bring in the fruit harvest and swap recipes and enjoy that fruit. Very significant in, the, in that particular area of Glasgow where it's more about battered Mars bars uh, than it is about good fruit. It's a kind of wonderful image. It's just like, you know, this place has been transformed back into a little Eden. And it's the kind of thing that any of us could get involved in, could get involved in thinking about and seeking to do. Let's have a look at my second example. Second example is a, there we are, is a statue by an artist called Mark Wallinger. This is a statue called Eke Homo, statue of Christ that was put on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square in 1999. You'll remember there are four plinths there, three of them have got kind of imperial figures of history on. Um, and then there's this figure of Christ that was put there for some months, white marble resin, gold-plated um, crown of thorns. Very vulnerable figure, very sort of tender, vulnerable, and so on. Wasn't to everyone's taste. Uh, it caused quite a lot of controversy. Um, but Wallinger's 
purpose was to put it in the middle of these icons of empire and to really be wanting to say something about how Christ spoke truth to power. He wanted to put Christianity back in the public square, even though he wasn't a Christian, he's not a Christian himself. He wanted to just put it there as an act of provocation to say, what does the person of Jesus Christ mean now in the middle of London at the beginning of the 21st century? My third example is Curitiba, which is Brazil's seventh largest city and has been described as a pastoral city, a kind of city garden. It's got 52 square meters of green space per capita, and it's got a municipal shepherd who wanders around with 30 sheep, um, kind of doing the lawns of all the parks. And it's an amazing sustainable city, um, which has really been principally the vision of a particular mayor who was elected three times in a row. When he came to office, he was being asked to increase the traffic in the city by widening the streets. And instead, he said, no, I'm going to implement an amazing bus system, and we're not going to have more traffic. We're going to narrow the streets, if anything. And so they've got this bus system, which 70 to 80% of people's travel in the city is done on. And that results in 25% lower carbon emissions per capita than average for Brazilian cities. It's a city that's got its slums and its favelas like any other Brazilian city, but it's also got a program where people in the slums are encouraged to collect up rubbish and to take it to drop-off points where they're paid in fruit and vegetables. And so these slums are apparently some of the cleanest slums in the world inhabited by people who are on good diets. And today, this is one of the most prosperous cities in Latin America, and 99% of the population declare themselves content and happy with their city. I can't imagine that being said of any other city in the world. 99%. But finally, if, you, if that's not you, if you're not a city designer uh, and you're just thinking about what can I do in my own little place, well, let's consider it in terms of our homes and what um, this might mean for our homes at an intimate domestic level. There's a theologian called Calvin Seerveld, and he encourages Christians to start engaging with the environment of their home in a fresh way. So he says, why not start putting in more objects of beauty into your house. It doesn't involve great expense. This is actually from um, a South African home in a, in a very poor neighborhood. But just where the use of kind of color and light things brings a sense of real beauty. He encourages us to put homemade bread on the table instead of what he calls the carbohydrated synthetic pulp that supermarkets sell. He says, have things in your home which are resources for spiritual renewal. So have a chair that you can go to that is your scripture chair, your prayer chair, your contemplation chair. And he says, find artwork that evokes what you want the spirit of this place that you live in to be. 
What I've been trying to say is that I think as Christians, we too often can think of our faith in a disembodied way. But the Bible shows us that we're a material people in a material place, and we're intended to be renewing creation around us. And so I want to encourage you not just to inhabit the middle of the story that we're given in Scripture, where creation is groaning, important though that is, but also its glorious ending. We've been given the end of the story, and it should change how we seek to do our lives as a result. You may remember that in the last battle by C.S. Lewis, at the end, there is a vision of the new Narnia emerging out of the old Narnia. And Lewis describes it like this. He says, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was that the new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flow and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. And then the unicorn that's there, which is a kind of symbol of Christ, pours its ground, pours the ground with its hoof, and it says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Perfect creation, perfect belonging within it. And it's that place where at last this magnificent symphony of creation is going to play in all its majesty. And so I just want to encourage us in a season where we're seeking to be an outward-facing church and to think not only about how we worship God and get refreshed within these walls, but also about how we seek to take the Spirit of God outside these walls to our city, to encourage you to ask, what, what can I do? What physical, practical things can I do differently in order to bless the place, the good place I've been put in? What part can I play in this orchestral symphony? What's going to be my melody? And how can I enjoy, preserve, and redeem this amazing place that we've each been put in?